Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Lunch Therapy. I'm your host, Adam Roberts. I'm talking to you now from a house in Provincetown, Massachusetts, where I'm on vacation with some friends and Craig, and I didn't want to leave you dry with uh, no podcast this week. So my patient today is Amy Thielen. She is the author of multiple books, including Give a Girl a Knife and The Midwestern Table, and her latest company is an absolutely gorgeous new book featuring 125 recipes to make when companies coming to dinner. In today's episode, Amy talks all about living in a house with artists and gutter punks in her 20s. I used to like pee in a quart jar in the mornings and like throw it out the window. What the Austrian chefs thought of her skills in a four-star kitchen. They just thought all of us American cooks were totally terrible. And her family's pork store that used all of the different parts of the pig. Everybody's couch smelled like sausage. All right, without further ado, here is my conversation, my lunch therapy session with Amy Thielen. Well, Amy, it is so nice to meet you. I'm a big fan. Thank you so much for doing lunch therapy. Yeah, well, it's so good to finally meet you too. It's been yeah. a long time. I've followed your stuff forever. Oh, uh, well, Over same. 10 yeah. or 15 years, I mean. Because we have similar trajectories in that you were in New York for a while and then moved away and I was in New York. I don't know what years you were there, but I feel like there was some overlap for sure. There was. There was. I was uh, there from 99 until 08. Okay. I was there from 2006 through 2011. So uh, some overlap. I'm sorry, 2004, 2004 to 2011. Oh, yes. Uh, yeah. Um, well, I just want to get come right out of the gate and say I've been tearing through your brand new book company. It is amazing. It's such a good book. Congratulations. Thank Do you want to tell, tell everybody about the idea behind it and writing it and when it comes out and all that stuff? Yeah. So actually, I just got my first copy mm. um, yesterday. Oh, see, I've, been using the, I've been looking it at it yet. Okay, because you gave me the PDF, so I should say I'm not tearing yeah. through it physically. I'm tearing through it on the computer. Oh, look, there it is. It's such yeah. a great cover. I love it. You like it? I love it. It has such a great design. It's, it's thank, thank God it's not one of those like all white cookbook covers that you see everywhere these days. No. No, I mean, matches my shirt, actually. Look at that. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Did not plan it. But no, this, Um, I'm super excited about it. It looks so good i'm i'm really really excited i love the photos kristen Tig did such an amazing job and um, it's, it really captures your world i mean as i imagine it because you know for those who don't know you're you live in minnesota yes and the part of the premise of the book is that you have a lot of company that's why it's called company and it um and you host these parties and dinners and, and just the pictures in the book just make it feel so inviting i feel like i want to become your best friend and book a flight and come over you for and you're invited Okay. Uh, so what, what was the genesis? I mean, you've written other books before. So why and how did you come up with this one? Yeah. So my first book was, you know, a cookbook, The New Midwestern mm -hmm. Table. And that one was really about, it was kind of like an anthology of Midwestern food, I would say, updated, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then it ended up being somewhat personal, but it was more of a, uh, a project for me initially. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? That's how it began. And then I did a memoir, which obviously, you know, dive, dives deep. <laughs> yes, yes. Of course. And that was called A Girl with a Knife? Give a Girl a Knife. Give a Girl a Knife. Okay. I did my research, clearly. Yeah. <laughs> and that that was the second book you did after The Midwestern Table? Yeah, that's my, my other pink book. Yes. That also has a great cover. You have great covers to your books. Thank you. I... I really do like being involved with the art. I'm not yes. sure always that the publishers love that I'm always so involved with the art. 
I wish I, I was more, I, I wish I stood up for myself more with some of this stuff. You know, it's like, you because they they so want you just to acquiesce and be like, are you happy? Good. Let's move on. And it's like, you know oh, what? I, I shouldn't say that even because it's like, I know what you mean. But in this case, uh, Norton, WW Norton, I mean, mm-hmm. we were just like completely in sync on all visuals and design. And my editor and I went really deep. And then the, um, what is Steve? Steve Atardo. He did the cover. He designed the cover, but it's actually a painting. This is one painting that a really well, people good can't of- see it. So let's, let's see if we could describe it. It's sort of pink and it has yellow, oh, right. and green, and orange. But it of almost has like like a mid-century modern. Would you like? I'm trying to think like what what, what aesthetic would you say that is? It almost feels like an vintage advertisement or something i don't it can't feels yeah. like a still life a vintage advertisement yes and it's yeah. pink and yellow kind of like a like saturated pastels and it's uh-huh. a, like a tableau of cups and fruit and some drinks and my name is actually set into a beer can label which <laughs> i love which you that's don't awesome. see right away you're not like oh that's a beer can but i didn't anyway, notice that though no. anyway <laughs> But a friend of uh, mine and my husband, Aaron's, he's an artist. Um, her name is Holly Coolis. She's a painter and she shows in New York. And she has been making this like suite of still lives for years. And they're just yeah. incredible. And I, it was such a, it was such an easy part of this process was to say, you know, hey, Holly, what do you think about one of those paintings as a cover for my book? And she was like, yes. And everything wow. went just perfectly seamlessly through W.W. Norton. And it was like, I'm happy with it. That's so cool. Well, it's funny because as as I was thinking about this book and the idea of company, the thing that immediately occurs to me is COVID and uh, just that period when we were all isolated. And now, now we're in this period of like wanting company and wanting to have parties. And so the timing of your book feels mm-hmm. really perfect. But how did that all play out in terms of the conception of the book? I mean, were you working on company when COVID happened or did you pitch it afterwards? Or where were you in the journey? <laughs> <laughs> so... This book, I have been working on this book for a really long time, um, probably almost six years. You know, oh, okay. since my last book, and I've done a few other things in the, you know, in addition, but not a ton. You know, I've been working on this book for a really, really long time, mm-hmm. and it it spanned COVID. Got it. So it was really strange, actually, to be writing about. I mean, I, I began writing about company and entertaining before COVID and then COVID hit. And then I wrote most of the book during COVID and it was a really weird time to be writing about that. And I think it was for the copy and the text and the story. I think it was good because I sort of like everything had more weight, you know, Mm -hmm. this idea of entertaining or having people over feeding people. It just, it felt like really intense and like something I really, really wanted to do. So, yeah. and I was missing it. And I think we, all of us we went a little cra- stir crazy without company. So to, to yes. like be able to have company again is such a thrill and like, you know, just to have people over for dinner. And what's so great about your book is you have different tiers of dinner parties or gatherings. It's like you have small groups, like six to eight, and then you have like larger groups and even bigger groups. So it's like, you know, it's, and, and so how often are you entertaining at your house? A lot. Yes. <laughs> so, so I, yeah. And it's a menu cookbook. So it's like, yes, it spans. Most of the book is like six to eight, which is like a normal yield. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there are some bigger men, men menus. So there's like two menus for real big parties, like 20 people, yes. which over the years, a lot of people have been, you know, they email and they're like, 
well, I'm sure you get this question too. What do I do for this? What do I do for a graduation right. party? You know, like your aunt is like, Amy, you got the recipe. Adam, you got the recipe. What am I doing <laughs> this and that? You know, and so this book kind of answers at the end. There's two two menus that answer those questions too. But um, what did you ask me? <laughs> I, I, well, no, I was just saying that it, that it's it's um set up for different tiers. I, I was just observing that like it's, it's yeah, great yeah. for. But you know, it's funny because like I wrote down these recipes that like caught my eye. I mean, one one of the things about this book, and I'm gonna stop praising your book after a while, and we'll just have a conversation. But okay, <laughs> okay because it makes me really uncomfortable as much yeah. as I love it. Oh, yeah. we'll talk about that in your therapy session. But <laughs> okay, you know, okay, it's okay, funny because it's like gathering food could have been like sort of just like chili or something but every dish in this book is like something wild or like something unexpected like i wrote down like apple frito miso with uh or misto with peels lemons and sage and uh apricot snickerdoodles and pork stuffed barbecue chicken thighs and crispy smashed chicken breast with gin and sage juice so it's like these are all like sort of inventive unexpected twists or entirely new dishes so how do you come up with a dish well, I mean, all those recipes and all of these recipes are super strongholds in my repertoire. I have all been right. making this stuff. Most of most everything in here I have made so many times in real life um, before I even pitched the book. Really? These are like, yeah. So I would I would think, you know, way back, like when I was developing recipes for my first book and then the Food Network for the TV show, it, it was like I had this idea, like I had to make these recipes that were. I don't know. Trendy. I think I had that pressure mm-hmm. or I was a little bit more informed at that time by my own fine dining cooking experience. Yes. I, I wasn't that far out of the kitchen there. So I, I really thought everything had to be like, just like, you know, like on Something fire. Unique. Yeah. That's really interesting. So it's like, you're bringing your fine dining, um, like imagination into the home kitchen and putting like spins on everything in a way. Right. And so it, it's been a while though. And so, Sometimes things were too, you know, they're too difficult or chefy, you know. So over time, I've really uh, lost some of my like fine dining <laughs> cooking skill, and now yeah. I'm I'm most definitely a civilian. Um, but I do like I I still think about like now I'm like why don't I just make a book of the things I I really make like yeah. all the time. Yeah, and some of it it turns out I guess some people think that they're creative and you know and I think they are I I just also think though that they're um they make sense it's not like this kind of like wild creativity that like I don't know what am I trying to say like you're just like loop-de-doo you know it's yeah you're not making like foam and like doing like deconstructed like you know ice cream sundaes it's like no these are things people really want to eat so I totally right it's something that is a little bit of a twist there's always like a little bit of elevation but there's such imagination. I mean, like I wrote down like coffee with chartreuse and smoked al- almonds praline. Like, I mean, I'm pretty creative in the kitchen, but I the idea of you just are. like going into my liquor cabinet and taking out chartreuse and pouring it into coffee and then putting chocolate. I mean, where did I mean there has to? I, mean, I think we got to go deeper here. Like, where did that even come <laughs> yeah. from? How did how did you think of that? Well, that one, and I think it's in the head note as well. That one is pretty directly inspired by a story told in not the recipe so much, but like the a story told by Madeline Kamen in uh, When French Women Cook, which is... I, I think oh, yeah, I have that book, yeah. Is it, It's my favorite cookbook, I think. Um, okay. And it's a narrative, actually. It, mm-hmm. 
and that sort of makes sense. But there are recipes at the end of each chapter, and it's organized by her spending a year with different female relatives across France hmm. and in different regions. And so it goes very deeply into the food of like the Patois, the food of the Savoie, the food of, you know, Auvergne. And, and I actually am forgetting which region that drink is from, but it's a story she told about, we were up skiing and then we came home to, you know, Tante Louise's house, whatever. And <laughs> we, and we had hot chocolate with chartreuse. Um, and that just always stuck with me. So that's a pretty direct lift as an idea. And then I added the smoked almond praline because I really like smoked almonds and I love to roll nuts in hot sugar. And just <laughs> that's kind of like a really <laughs> thing I do all the time. Well, um, that's also inspiring to me. Like I have so many old books, like old cookbooks that like sometimes I yeah. pull them out and they feel dusty. But that's really exciting to me that like you were reading this like old when when French women cook and just got so inspired. Now I kind of want to pull that out and like read it like a book. So you should reread that book. That yeah. that book yeah. is fantastic. I have a lot of. I'm a pretty. I'm pretty nerdy. I have yeah. a lot of. Um, well, you wear glasses. Oh, you so, you want to see? Yeah. Oh, do I ever? You want to see my cookbook? I'll show yeah, you. Yeah, let's see. I'm gonna okay. I'm gonna verbally oh. describe like what we're seeing. So yeah. there's a shelf in a beautiful wooden room. Oh my God, I have so many cookbooks. It's so funny because I'm about to pack up because we're moving to New York. Oh, and my and my husband is like, you know, I don't know if you can see, but there's, there's a shelf behind. Oh, you have a lot too. Um, well, I'm, well, we'll pull this clip and put it on the internet. Um, <laughs> but the, um, you know, my cookbooks, Craig, my partner is like, you got to cull them. You know, we can't bring that many books. Oh. Are you kidding? I was like, I've been culling this collection for a lifetime. I'm like, these are my prized cookbooks. So yeah, you're like, the call is already automatic, man. Yeah. This is... I feel the same way and it's hard to get rid of them. You know, the worst I thing I ever did was I read that Marie Kondo book when it came out, the art of tidying up. And, and like, I went through all my cookbooks, like this doesn't spark joy. This doesn't spark joy. And, and I got rid of so many books. Now I'm like, wait, wait, what did I do? Like I, I, I didn't spark joy at that moment, but now it would have sparked joy. So anyway, many, well, speaking, yeah. Speaking how of many do you think do yeah. that you have? How many do you well, think you're counted? Are you going to count now? That I think I have I think I have 150. Yeah. How many do you think you have? Somebody at I think it was um, Eater asked me once to count them, and I I think I have 300. Okay. 350. That's, that's a lot of books. And if you're I mean, this is such books. a such a cheesy question, but if the house was on fire and you had to grab three of the cookbooks to save, which three are you saving? This feels Dude, like my next, my next podcast subject. Yeah, that's a hard one. I mean, one French woman cook. Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, I have some vintage books that I really like. There's a book of Polish Polish recipes that I love so much. Where is it? It's wonderful, and I just I love the design of it, and it just kind of goes deep in a way. I don't and know exactly I which one you're talking about because someone gave me that as a gift. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the one with the amazing cover. It's like yes. that. It's like Polinka or Polenka or something. Yeah. Yes, that's yeah. it. Yes, you have that too. Yeah, cool. That's a great one, and I I also like um, Ada Boni. I love I love that Italian book. You know the one? They're very. A D A B O N I is her last name, and they're no photo. I mean, hardly any photos. Just like time life sort of pictures, uh -huh. but. And the, the recipes are very like stacked. 
um, on the page and it's kind of, and it's just Italian food, but somebody, it's not just like the silver spoon with like, you know, oh, these are just Italian recipes that are plain. Somebody, uh -huh. there was a person behind there who had put their mark on, on these recipes a little bit, you know? Mm. This is dangerous for me because now I'm going to order it and I have to pack up. So this is yeah, you are idea. yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I just I like those books where you um you feel that authorial presence, mm -hmm. even if they're not necessarily like talking in the head note, you know, which is I a totally get that. Yeah, I was just looking at Marion Cunningham's Breakfast Book. Do you have that one? I don't. I have another one of hers, Lost Recipes. Oh, yeah. But her breakfast book is so charming because it's just like very casual. Like, here's some buttermilk waffles. Here's some pancakes. But just her voice is so like authoritative and, and also kind of soothing. That's just like you feel like you're being taken care of, which I love. Yeah, they're not like um, stretching or like uh, straining to have personality or a story. You know, it's, yeah. it's just it feels very intimate and there's an ease to it. Yes. And I would also say Mimi Sheraton's Christmas book. Oh, I don't have, have to that take one. that because it has all of my gingerbread like cutouts for making my gingerbread house. So I, I would need no that. idea. Okay, I'm gonna get that. Hey, we're we're talking so much. We have to get into your therapy session. So okay, all right. What is it like? Tell me. Okay, well, I'm I'm gonna ask you what you had for lunch, and then we're gonna see what it reveals about you. So, Amy, tell us what did you have for lunch today. Um, I had leftovers. What does that okay. reveal about me? Well, let's hear what they were. <laughs> okay. So I had um, potatoes and onions from last night. Mm -hmm. um, actually, Aaron made those and they okay. were delicious. Potatoes were out of the garden. Were they like <laughs> fried? Were they roasted? Were they sauteed? It was, he did something to them that I wouldn't usually do, which is he put them in foil and baked them, which I okay. probably wouldn't do, but he did. <laughs> Or maybe he put it in the on the grill. I wasn't even around. I got home later and he had made that. And then he made um, broccoli from the garden. So it's quite simple. And then I was eating uh, a little bit of Thielen sausage, my family's meat market sausage. Okay. Um, and I was just like slicing it on a board. I was kind of crazy. Today I was like lunch. potatoes and broccoli. And then, you know, then I was just like eating sausage a little bit here and there. Well, the immediate thing as your as your lunch therapist that immediately came to mind was um, you talking about your husband making the um, potatoes and onions and you saying that it's not how I would do it. But also like when you said that, like it was sort of it wasn't judgmental. It was just sort of like not what I would do. But I'm curious. I, as, I learned as, something. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, as, but as somebody with a background, clearly in restaurants and stuff, how are you in terms of seating control in the kitchen? And how are you in terms of, you know, wanting to be in charge of everything? I love it when people cook for me. I mean, yes. who doesn't? It it was very loving, you know. It's like potatoes and onions roasted yeah. until they're and and there's a sweetness that came out in the way that he did it uh -huh. in because they were contained and they kind of like steamed all together. Potatoes get so sweet. I love that about potatoes sometimes, you know, especially the fresh ones. Yeah, that's um, one thing about your books that is very like makes me jealous which is that you eat so locally just very naturally like all I think you wrote it either in this book or the last one like that you can't get corn in the winter it's like you wouldn't be able to get it uh like get a 60 it up mile. yeah but you would just you just eat what's there so I think that's so cool well let's not romanticize it I mean I do <laughs> yeah but I live in a small town with you know 
the town is, I live 25 minutes outside of a town of 4,000 people. Wow. Um, and so we have like a regular kind of encyclopedic normal uh, grocery store. Mm -hmm. And so that's in the winter, once the snow falls, that's, that's what I am left to cook out of too. So I think mm -hmm. that at the same time that I have a garden and it's really idyllic and gorgeous and I have, you know, top flight, everything in the summer, in the winter I'm cooking, I'm, you know, I have my limitations are very middle American. So mm -hmm. I can't get, you know, like I can, I think last year was the first year I could buy prosciutto, you know, within a hundred miles. So, wow. so in a way that in that sense, my, my, my work and what I do is really informed by that, those limits, some of those limitations. Which makes you a much better cookbook writer than those of us in big cities where we can go get like the imported whatever, you know, that most people won't be able to get. So I, I think you I can get you. everything in a city, yeah. though. And I think that's a great, I mean, that's awesome. <laughs> Well, I, I think this is a natural segue into your journey through the world of fine dining and restaurant kitchens. And I'm curious for those who haven't read your memoir, um, what, where did you start and how did you get there and how did you go back? <laughs> it's a lot of, lots of big questions. <laughs> I'll try to do it short. Yeah. So I'm from this town. It's called Park Rapids, Minnesota. We're at the top of the Mississippi. Okay. Um, and didn't think I would be living here. My 16 year old self has can't believe it because mm -hmm. <laughs> I wanted to leave. I really did. Uh, where did you grow up? I'm just curious. I grew up in New York, but then my family moved to Boca Raton, Florida when I was 11. And okay. I couldn't wait to leave Florida. So I totally get that. And did. Yes, right? I did. Yes. But but New York is like, where I did I grew up in New yeah, I mean, where I grew up in New York is not that like dissimilar from where I'll be moving uh, in a couple of weeks. So I'm, go I'm moving to Brooklyn where mm -hmm. my dad spent his entire life trying to get away from. So there's a, there's a lot of parallels in these stories of like being mm -hmm. drawn back to like your roots and wanting to go back to it. So I get Right. That. It's like, you're kind of this like homing pigeon a little bit. Yeah. Craig, uh, Craig, my husband said that um, me going back to New York is like ET going back to his home planet. So <laughs> that's, which, you know, it's just, it's funny because LA for me, like I, I love LA, but it's been a struggle to sort of really vibe with the, the, the philosophy here, just the overall like way of life here, which is very like body focused and fitness focused and yeah. outdoorsy. It's like, that's not me at all. Like I want give me like a good, yeah. like indoor space for the book and a glass of wine. And I'm happy. Uh, but, I like, hear like, you. Yeah. I hear you. I like, do. Me, I let's thought... go back to you though. I went, wait, wait, so you, yeah. you ended up, okay. So you started. No, I, relate. I relate deeply because I always thought I would live in a city I wanted to get out of here me and my best friends you know we wanted out mm -hmm. um and went to college in St. Paul and McAllister and then I met my husband now husband and started dating him for you know back when I was 20 20 years old mm. so we've been together 27 years that is a long time that's yeah. very impressive wow yeah and so we've traveled together in a sense, so too. And so we lived up, we lived up here. So he he had built a house. He's also from my small my hometown of Park Rapids, um, and I knew his sister. So it's a very cute cute story. Um, and then we moved up here to Park Rapids to a, like a cabin that he had built out on in the woods on some land that his parents had bought for hunting or for camping. And there was no power and no running water. Um, and at the time, my parents had just divorced, 
it, and you know that really wasn't done in the early 90s and late 80s we my mom was really on the vanguard there yeah <laughs> and my parents you know they handled it all right and we moved to the twin cities minneapolis and so because of though that 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 loss of home that mm-hmm. i left when i was 16 um i felt like there was like kind of like a phantom limb sort mm-hmm. of flapping out there right and that was part of the draw for me to come up here with my boyfriend, Aaron, and live in a cabin in the woods because everybody thought, you know, that's pretty crazy. You really like to go to malls and like shop. <laughs> I see. And so go to bookstores. Like, got it. So it was a little bit of a rebellion or like a little bit of like a counter programming to like your your normal way of life. It was kind of odd, but I think it was partly um a, in, you know, unconscious like rejection of money. Because uh-huh. my parents were fighting about money and arguing about money. And I didn't want to hear about it anymore. I'm like, you can just go to the woods, have no money, grow all your own food. Who cares? You know, and I think that I looking back, I see that that was maybe a little bit of it. Um, yeah. But then all of a sudden we moved to New York City because <laughs> I just got kind of sick of it. It was three years and, you know, and no running um, water for three years. Well, we would move down in the twin in in the winter time to Minneapolis, where we lived, actually in like an artist live work warehouse. Okay. With a bunch of homeless people and gutter punks. <laughs> Got it. So you've lived many lives, worn many hats. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I used to like pee in a quart jar in the mornings and like <laughs> throw it out the window. <laughs> it was so gross. But like, I was twenty two. What are you gonna do? Yeah. The bathroom's like on the seventh floor, you know, we were. You got to live your life when you're young and do crazy things. Because then when you get old, it's like you're too comfortable and it's too hard to get off the couch. So I I think it's all good. So wait, so you just moved to New York and then did you immediately start working in fine dining or was there a transitional period? I mean, kind of, because I went to a cooking school called now ICE Uh um, and it's only a five month program. Was it the French Culinary Institute? Was that what it was? No, I didn't go to that one. I went to Peter Kump's. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that was a five and a half month program. It was less expensive than any of the others. And it was good, you know, because they made you do uh, an internship. They called it an externship for whatever reason. And so I had to go and just find a restaurant. And I was like, you guys, why wouldn't you just like go to the best restaurant? (laughs) (laughs) So So I'm like, where did you go? Oh, I went to Bully. Yeah. Is that, is that how you say his name? Is it Boule? No, I've not. Boule. But I literally yeah. had come like from the deep country and I was like, I, I don't know. I just didn't know how to pronounce it. I pronounced it wrong at first. And I ended up, he's a, you know, in New York City, he's one of the few chefs who has tons of French training. He's in, you know, it's like him, Jean-Georges, Danielle. Yeah. I remember um, like when he had his restaurant in Tribeca. I never, I don't think I went to it, but is he, is he yeah. still have a restaurant in New York? He has a test kitchen. Okay. Yeah. So I worked for him for, you know, I ended up in his kitchen working at Danube, which was an Austrian restaurant Uh and you work for free, you know, it's like a stage and it was a six week stage though. So it's like six weeks and they had just opened, they were working me like 80 hours a week. And like having just watched the bear and having read all these exposés now about restaurant culture, I mean, were you, uh, What's the right way to put this? I mean, do you look back on that and like, wow, what an abusive situation? Or do you look back on that and like, wow, what a great training ground for my career? 
training ground, I would say. Although, I mean, there's no question that it's ridiculous. That's yes. a ridiculous system. I mean, it's not sustainable. You couldn't do it forever. At the mm-hmm. time for me, it worked. And it's it's obviously not great. I mean, I'm not, I don't have anything against like working like that hard or working. Well, 80 hours is just not healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, 70 though, I could always do pretty well. And when a place is opening, you have to have that, you know, it's like so you're- 70 to 80. So like, I'm just trying to even do the math, like 12 hours a day, seven days a week. Six would, would... days usually, sometimes so seven. So like that, that would get you to 70. Yeah, that's, I mean, so you were just there from like 8 a.m. to like 8 p.m. or 5 a.m. Oh, no, it's longer than a 12 hour day, though, because you get there at 10 and you leave at, well, when that last table goes through, which in New York City, as you know, people will come in at 10 o'clock and order the tasting menu, which is like, you know, eight dishes. So and Boulay, everything was he's he's a great chef and he's really taught so many of new york's really great chefs you know like did anita, anita low work there yes because i cooked um, with her for my cookbook and she told a, a terrifying yeah? story where she was like what? standing she was like standing on like a counter trying to put something away and then she stepped down and put her entire leg in like a vat of boiling like veal stock and like not only uh injured herself but also sure. ru- ruined the stock which, you know, well, might have been the bigger issue for David Boulay. Um, I, I feel like I had heard that story, either her tell it or somebody tell it. Yeah, um, yeah I felt so bad for her. That's really a nightmare. So when you were there but and you came from creative. Culinary, yeah, He's a very creative chef. He's kind of known for that, for being improvisational. Mm-hmm. And when you're a cook, it's a real pain in the ass because he just like drops, you know, stuff on your station mid-service and is like, prep this, let's do this, you know. We have a VIP and it's like, whoa, that's insane. And when I work for the other chefs, like I work for Don George and I work for Danielle and I learned something different at each of them. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I work for um, Shea Galante too. Um, yeah. But it was good training to be like dropped into the fire and have that kind of improvisational, real artistic thing, because I, I thought that's just how it was. Mm-hmm. And what was it like? Um, I just have to ask because we were talking about when French women cook, and I'm just yeah. thinking about being a woman in these very male-dominated French kitchens. I mean, what was that like for you? Well, it's very sexist. Yes, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, did you feel like that you were treated differently than other the male chefs that were at a similar level, or did did you feel you know you're nodding? So <laughs> I'm going yeah. off that. Yeah. Yes. I mean, absolutely. I mean, there weren't very many women in that kitchen. Um, Sarah, Sarah Rich, who has a restaurant in San Francisco with her husband, Evan, she was the other one who was a woman, the other one, the other (laughs) one, you know, at that time initially. And um, yeah, absolutely. They just look at you like you're the girl, you know, and Mm -hmm. I experienced a lot of sexism. I think that I didn't probably get paid as much mm-hmm. and that's a big problem yeah you know you're just like, confronted with especially in the danube kitchen there were i learned a lot from these austrians who came who were sous chefs and they were incredible and they came straight from Af- austria from like michelin three star but over there you know you start as an apprentice and so there was kind of like a like an arrested adolescence or development mm-hmm. thing kind of like a cool kid you know uh-huh boyish kind of 
uh, pranks and shit. It was always very, very incredibly sexist. And so to have to like witness that, you know, you're just like, oh, this again. Yeah. You know, I just, I mean, I would just kind of slay them, try to like just say something really devastating, you know. <laughs> it's, it's it's not like a big part. I mean, I don't feel like even on the bear, like I don't really feel like you see that struggle um, the way that it must have been in that time period before these big upheavals of like Me Too and all the other kind of things that have happened since then where there's a spotlight being shined on it. But I'm also curious in terms of the like techniques that you had to master, like were you when you went to culinary school, obviously like you're, you're learning how to like brunoise and do all that kind of stuff. But like when you got to those kitchens, were they like holding up like a piece of celery and being like, this isn't small enough or like, you know, like did you get, did you have it drilled into you like the right way to do it? Oh yeah. They were brutal. I mean, those, those Austrians, especially they, they came over and they were, they just thought all of us American cooks were totally terrible mm -hmm. and they, you know, they were going to set us straight. I mean, we felt <laughs> like absolute idiots and I was really new to it. You know, it wasn't like I cooked a ton before then. Mm -hmm. I had watched my mother cook, you know, and I, I, I did sometimes learn how to do some things like cut. I wouldn't say that I had knife skills. And I think sometimes people think that you have to like cook with kids and teach them all these like things firsthand and have them do it. And I think that it, what's more important even is watching somebody cook and put together flavors. And mm -hmm. I learned how things taste from her you know and what how to keep things clean yes what did you, what kind of stuff clean. did your um, <laughs> mom what, what kind of dishes did your mom make when you were growing up my mom was a really good cook and that was really her preoccupation and she was a stay-at-home mom and she cooked we would watch great chefs of mm -hmm. do you remember that tv show on yeah TV? you can still watch it it's on hulu or something it's the best like nap show like if you want to take like a good afternoon nap you put on like great chefs of like your you know and it's just sort of like you kind of drift off as you're watching some chef like flambe something but i know exactly what you're talking about yeah. it's like super low tech there's like yes. no production yeah. it's just a camera in some chef's white and silver kitchen uh-huh yeah so you would watch would that watch with her yeah with my mom and my two brothers we watched that every, i mean after school a lot and then my mom would be like well, let's go to the store. Let's get the ingredients. Let's make that. Oh, that's so sweet. What a great mom. That's so fun. what a great way to um share in like the excitement of cooking something as opposed to what a lot of people grow up with, which is the idea that cooking is a chore that is there's nothing fun about it. You know, it's just like, I got to get this done. I got to get food on the table. So that's really nice that your mom was approaching it from the other and do you have like specific memories of dishes that, that you made with her? Yeah. Yeah. So my mom, she was, she's very good with meat. Mm -hmm. Um, and I love cooking meat in mm -hmm. my family. We have like a, my cousins are fourth generation in the family butcher shop. So yeah, you mentioned um, that earlier. I should ask you about that. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's just a small town, like a smokehouse that is known for in the state of Minnesota for making great bacon and sausage. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's very like, you know, kind of Austrian style or German, Eastern German. Mm -hmm. And my mom would make pork. I mean, I grew up with a lot of meat, a lot of rich meat and also a lot of vegetables. Mm -hmm. And she would cook that pork butt roast until it just like sunk, you know, mm. and it was very juicy. And she was she I have memories of that, you know. And she would make gravy because we are in the Midwest. But mm -hmm. I didn't grow up with like the you know, the casseroles and the right. jello salads and 
the things that a lot of people around me did. Um, Mm -hmm. I grew up with like fried chicken and gravy and, you know. Yeah, I feel like your books kind of redefine the like preconceived notions about Midwestern food that it's all like gloppy, like casserole, you know, cans of cream condensed mushroom soup or cream of mushroom soup. You know, it's like there's such a, there's a real freshness and and seasonal approach to your cooking, which is really cool. Um, well, my grandmother, her opinions were so my grandma grew up on a farm and her opinions about everything were, you know, she hated industrial food. Mm-hmm. You know, she grew up through the depression. She absolutely hated it. Didn't trust it. Didn't even trust bleached flour. Mm-hmm. Didn't trust um, all kinds of stuff. So and then my mother, I mean, the force of my grandma's opinions were was so strong that my mom also had that. And so in a sense, she kind of like my mom sort of missed the 60s. Like, and she didn't do like the granola thing at all. Like we were still eating like cast iron pan. We're on the farm, you know? And then she also really didn't like herself. Doesn't like, like cream of mushroom soup stuff. I mean, she had some of that, but like, I don't know how to make rice crispy bars, you know? (laughs) I still, I've never made those. It's so funny. I've been cooking for 20 years. No, I've never made it, but I like them. I just have never done it. So Maybe that's my next project. Um, So did your mom ever come to visit you in New York and eat at the restaurants where you were working? And what did she think of it? Oh, she loved it. I mean, yeah. And she offered to cook for Boulay and then Mario, the the chefs who were the the ostriches. Oh, did did she do it? She wanted to, but, you know, they're busy. I'm like, mom, it's like they work seven days a week. They're not coming to dinner, but that was very sweet. They appreciated that. So how did you go? Because you mentioned earlier that you never thought you'd be back in your small town uh, when you left. So what brought you back? Um. Well, I had just had my son, Hank. Mm-hmm. So I sort of stopped cooking professionally in New York City. I worked yeah. through my sixth month of pregnancy, which. Wow, that's pregnancy. wild. Yeah, I stopped cooking on the line in like my fourth month. I started just doing like R&D research and development for Shea Galante. Mm-hmm. But I was working the same day with like this with all the same guys I'd worked with, you know, like throwing baby names, you know. Mm-hmm. I was like, what do you guys think of this one? You know. <laughs> um, and then we came back in 08. I think it was the financial crash, really, that yeah. sent us to reevaluate Um where were we going to stay? Where were we going to be? New York got expensive and it was kind of a choice. Like, and my husband is a sculptor. Okay. okay? And makes a living doing it, but you know, it's not like a job job. Right. Right. So neither of us had a job job. And do we go back to the place in the woods with now we had added onto it and put running water or do we stay in New York city? You know, it was a real, it was a hard choice. So when you got back, to the place in the woods so did you is, is, is the house that you're in right now the house in the woods yeah oh I didn't realize that okay so and so did you um build it out because it looks really nice in the books so like did you add to it and like develop it or how did you what did you do to it yeah so like the central room is is like a log cabin is what it looks like uh-huh. um and that's something my that's where that's the original house my husband built like really by hand with no power tools kind of crazy he rented like a generator or something that's incredible. Uh, it's a simple simple and then we added on you know a bedroom and a bathroom and running water and stuff like that and then a few years ago we added my dream kitchen on got it so how did you go about that like, what made it your dream kitchen 
Well, I put a lot of work into designing it. Um, at one point, impersonating a trades. Like, I was like, <laughs> I am the designer. I need the trade piece on all this, you know? Yeah. I got so, really into it. You know? <laughs> so did you, when you got back to Minnesota, did you immediately jump into writing books? Was that the next move? I had started writing for the Star Tribune. Mm -hmm. I had written, started writing features just okay. about food and Minnesota food and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And then I have been collecting all these like Minis like uh, Midwestern recipes on road trips for years. Okay. And so when I got back, I had worked on a cook some cookbooks a little bit here and there for the chefs I'd worked for. Mm -hmm. And so I started to think about writing a Midwestern book. Okay. And I was glad that, I mean, I was like, I have to be back here. Like, I felt it was really important to get to soak up the atmosphere yes. and to, and to have the stories of like my neighbors and family and different people. And I, we road tripped and found recipes and cool stuff and met awesome people. Do you know Viv um, Vivian Howard? She has that. Yes, yes. I love her. I don't know her in person, but I like, I love that show. And I just love it. It sounds like a very similar narrative where like she was from the South. She went to New York and worked at fancy restaurants and then she got pulled back to the South. And now she sort of brings that sensibility. So I, I love those stories of like, it's almost like you, it's like a hero's journey, like, um, like in a, like a myth, like, like Star Wars or something where it's like, you know, you go off on the adventure, but then you come back and now you're like wiser and you've learned things and you not to sound very Hollywood here, but that's sort no. of what it sounds like. Yeah. Oh, it's absolutely that, you know, but it, except for it was really like um, a kid of divorce who mm -hmm. you know, moves back to find because you can't just shake that home. Yeah. And it was that nostalgia. Is, oh, just dripping with nostalgia. I've always been that kid. Very dramatic. Um, do you what feel like a... you can get that back when you I mean, is that why you're moving home? Can I ask? Yeah. Turn the tables. Um, I yeah. uh, I'm actually very keen on not recreating the past in New York. Like I, I didn't want to live in the same neighborhood. Like we were looking in Park Slope, which is where we used to live. And then I was just like, I can't go to the same coffee shops, the same restaurants yeah. like I so we're going we're moving to Borum Hill so it does feel like new like even though it's still Brooklyn it's like this is a new neighborhood and a new experience and and um it's not so much the past or like you know as, as much of, I mean it's more about just like knowing what I like that I just mm -hmm. like the vibe of New York I like as much as people think New Yorkers are standoffish I find it to be the opposite like I feel like in LA people on the surface are very friendly and outgoing but like deep down they're like ready to cut your throat if it means they're going to move ahead uh whereas in new york i feel like people might be gruff and might be pushy but but if you like collapse on the streets the crowd of people come to you and lift you up you know so i think there's a more yeah. of a, commu a community mindedness in new york that i really crave and um and also it's just very isolating in la like you're just in these little pockets like you know we're in our apartment here and it's like for me to go see people, I have to get in my car. I have to drive to, you know, the grocery store to drive. Whereas in New York, you literally open your door and there's life everywhere and you run into people and you see, so I kind of really miss that. So um, I hear that, you. Yeah, that's sort of my thing. But I was going to ask you about raising a kid. Was there yeah. a factor um, when you had your son that you didn't necessarily want to raise him in New York versus raising him in Minnesota? Or is that not a factor in the decision making? It, it factored in. I mean, it's just easier. 
Yes. It's so much easier to raise a, a kid out here uh-huh. where, you know, like daycare was cheaper and then we hardly used it because we had mm-hmm. grandparents here who were watching him. And so he's got like these, you know, the aloe parents, right? Like the, yeah. that second level of, you know, my brother, his uncle and his, you know, my parents and Aaron's parents. And, and that's definitely was, you know, and also the value values. I mean, like my friend Diana um, has kids and they live sort of in the suburbs outside New York. And she said like she didn't want to raise kids in the city because it's like they can be spoiled. Like, you know, just like you're exposed to so much um, privilege in certain pockets of New York. And it's like I feel like, um, you know, yeah. living in in a place where it's like people aren't living in penthouse apartments or I mean, not, not to say obviously not all of New York, but like, you know, there's just so much wealth in new york right now that it could be a little unreal unrealistic about like what life is really like um yeah and this is not a rich area you know and it's a summer like lakes uh touristy area for the summer we kind of blow up but and there's some night you know fancy cabins and stuff but it's it can be feel a little bit gritty at times too you know there's a big potato plant it is it's good to have all of these class that exposure and that feeling of of belonging to you know mm-hmm. to be able to move between um all kinds of people and meet anyone yeah. but there's like you know the biggest uh french fry factory in america is in my hometown you know like really mm-hmm. i didn't yep. know that so do you ever yeah, get french make fries, fries from there? man we make you're <laughs> famous for that and that's local food around here if you go to the hardy's people would always say they're like our fries taste so much better at hardy's i'm like they're frozen Doesn't really make sense, <laughs> <but>. <laughs> that's really funny we so, are proud <laughs> yeah so um what was i going to ask you so you mentioned your family's meat business so yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that like is it was it on your mother's side your father's side and was it um how far back does it go well, this is kind of embarrassing, but it's on both my mother's and my father's side. Okay, I'm doing the math. Got it. Okay. Because yeah, uh, my parents are from a town of a thousand people, and my mom and her sister Renee both married Thielens. Oh, interesting. So we're yeah. Okay. It's like seven brides for seven brothers, right? Okay, got it. And so my cousins are, you know, my second and or my third and first cousins but it's not like, it's not like, but it's not like your parents themselves were cousins they no were no, just, no there's nothing weird that where i was gonna say like, it sounds like very like royal like british history okay no, got it. Yeah. there's nothing weird genetically it's just like when you ask me which side i mean how else do i explain it both got it. yep but who started the business so my great uncle Phil started the business in 22, 1922 wow. and he had a furniture store, uh, Thielen furniture. And then he wanted to sell more furniture. And so he started a meat market in the back of it with a recipe that, um, was not even our family one necessarily. It was like his employees, his right hand man's, but everybody was from that kind of same area in Europe, mm-hmm. which is like what is now probably Czechoslovakia, kind of those borderlands, Austria, mm-hmm. Germany, you know, right over there. Um, and so it's that style. It's a little mm-hmm. bit, it's cold smoked. And I mean, he sold a lot of couches, like all the, everybody's couch smelled like sausage, you know, <laughs> so did you, dogs did you... are like going insane everywhere, you know, it's like, <laughs> <laughs> so did you grow up like, like, 
going to the like i mean i'm just honestly i'm thinking like charlotte's web like i'm thinking like seeing seeing these seeing these like little pigs and then being a little kid and being like what happened to the pig and where did it go i mean was it kind of like that or there were a lot of dead animals yes but i don't know if we didn't really i know i didn't see them kill pigs but you know it's like we would go through the back door and we step over a puddle of blood and then just like and then we you know go and get like hot dog a a raw yeah wiener i've eaten a lot of nitrates and (laughs) really good meat and it's not salty it's it's really well done so um I was just reading that um, the New York Times review of Misha in New York just opened, which is Alex Dupac. I read that. Restaurant. Yeah, and it's like a twenty nine dollar hot dog, but I guess he it makes looks it pretty good. It looks really good. So, but to bring it full circle, when you are working on these books and working on uh, this brand new one, Company, are you? How do you surf the wave of like your knowledge from fine dining versus like your homespun like education from your mother, like? When you're writing for other people, like, do you find you have to like pull back or do you feel like, um, yeah, how do you deal with that? Well, I mean, this book has, it has a bit of a range in it so yeah. that it appeals. And I hope that people will find something. And it's not just written for like one kind of a home cook. It's written for, um, it's written on two levels, really. It's written, there's a lot of simple vegetables uh-huh. you know, served at their peak and just like boiled in salted water and salted buttered you know like simple but i'm writing about like when do you pull the vegetable from the water which is really fine dining you know that's yeah that but it's also like a farm you know so both those things and then there are some complicated recipes that i think that i have some um people who follow me or who have my books who like to send me notes and i think they're gonna like you know like this um I have a big a strudel uh-huh. and it's a, it's a French apple strudel cake thing. And you have to stretch the pastry way out. And I'm I find it, I'm bad at I find that. it therapeutic. personally. Okay. I'm only now getting better at pie because I used to be very timid when I would make yeah. pie. And now I'm like, okay, I'm just going to do it. And like, I partially, I think I was scared to add too much water, but by being so scared, I wasn't adding enough water. So then I would have like a very crumbly dough that would not roll out. But you know, it's like, it's funny when you mentioned like farm cooking versus fine dining, because I've watched like episodes of shows where like, you know, Daniel Ballou will go back to France and you'll see the farm where he grew up and you'll see that he grew up on a farm. <laughs> like, you know, that it, it, it is like all this fine dining actually starts like at the same place that you're wound up in a way like that it, it, it's all about the ingredients it's all about you yeah. know trying to get make your grandmother's food into something that feels worth all that money did you ever have aspirations of opening your own restaurant yeah i did i'm glad still? i didn't yeah i mean i saved you a lot of anguish i'm sure i mean i kind of dream about it still i dream yeah. about it but uh, I don't, I don't know. It, it would be hard. You'd have to really have a lot of people who, employees, you know, you could really trust. Otherwise, you just, I don't know. It's scary. But I, I don't know. Well, look at Reed Drummond. I mean, she has sort of like opened like a, I guess like a hotel and a restaurant where she lives. Yeah, pine, sort of Pioneer. Molly Yay. Molly uh, yeah. Yay, my neighbor. She's your neighbor. Um, yeah. But the, just that that idea of like bringing the world to you as opposed to like trying to go to a huge city and like making your mark. It's like there's something cool about, I think, like planting your flag where you're from 
and then just putting out the beacon like come to me like would would you ever do that in the town where you live I've thought about it but I don't know I haven't pulled the trigger on that I used to cook a lot of classes out here um Mm -hmm. so for when we first got back from New York I kind of ran ran like an illegal supper club for a while (laughs) I love that. That would be so fun. I kind of want to do that myself. You should do that. Yeah, maybe I will. I mean, I thought, what about having like total strangers in your house that like, what if like one of them is like really weird and like you don't know how to get them out of your house? Well, at the time, I guess I was just naive. It worked out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, that, honestly, like that's the thought I've had. Maybe I'm too neurotic. But I'm like, what if there's somebody here who's like, I invite people to buy tickets and it's just like a total like insane person. Well, but you've been on the internet for a long time. And so people could follow you and find you, you know what I mean? And and I don't, I'm not saying that to like make you scared. (laughs) You should do it. But like at that time, think back, you know, it's like 2008 and 2009. I mean, I barely even put it on the internet. It was mostly word of mouth. So that's a different thing. Yeah. But do you, I'm just curious. Do you, you know, I'm kind of like, I've been so isolated for so long out here. And I wonder, like, how much do you cook at home? How many times do you have dinner parties? You know, I'm hoping that going on tour with this book, I get to hear people's other people's stories. Cause yeah, I mean, I my own head all, here. all the time. So that's why this book was so nice, because it's like, oh, so many good ideas. But I, I host all the time. I mean, I love it. And it's actually one of the crazy things about our new apartment in New York, because we yeah, one of the main things is it has to have a nice kitchen and it has to have room for a dining room table. And our budget yeah. uh, ballooned because we were like, we would see apartments where it was like the kitchen. I mean, I took, I, t- I actually did some screenshots when I was on Street Easy looking for apartments. Yeah. Of New York, New York City kitchens that literally were a burner, like an inch of counter space, and then like a mini fridge. Like, and it would be like $6,000 a month. And I'd be like, what in the world Ooh. is going on? Because people don't cook in New York. They like, they, they just want to like live in the West Village and they don't care if their kitchen's a tiny little shoebox. Um, but now you know, we found the one that we want. So you'll have to come visit in New York and we'll cook together. I think I, I would love to. And I, I think I saw it on Instagram. It's a nice kitchen. It's yeah. big for it's New York real, City. It's dreamy. Like it's to the point where like, how did we find this? Like I've always had good luck because I think I'm I'm like insanely persistent when I go on like those apps to find a place like I will be on it literally every second nonstop loading it up loading it up and to the point I was doing that like Craig had to be like Adam step away from the computer (laughs) but then sure enough we were like at the hotel and that thing popped up and I was like let's go like it's 10 minutes away and we went to the open house and we were just like gotta take it um well Amy this flew by but I have to um ask you my final question because every podcast begins with what did you have for lunch but it ends with what will you be having for dinner tonight I am making um, crispy tofu. Okay. With stir fry with beans from the garden. Yeah. Yep. And, and it- rice in my rice cooker. I have, you know, the garden, my garden's really just pumping right now. I'm going to put a couple of eggplant in there too. So kind of like a Chinese. Can you show us your garden from the laptop or with the yeah. wife? This will be great. Okay. So yeah. I'll try to describe it. We'll do this at the, um, I'll put this on Instagram for those who are listening. I'm going to put this clip. So we're going through okay. the house. This is your dream kitchen. Look at your kitchen. Amazing. You got a giant island. This is my uh, wood stove. I've oh got my, my 70s chair in front of it. You can't see it. It's Why a wood would... stove. So in this, in the winter, oops, gosh, sorry. Yeah. 
mirror. Wait, where's the oh, there's the wood stuff. Okay, so the wood goes in where underneath the um where the oven is. Uh the the on your screen, like the right side's the oven and the left side is the um is the firebox. Oh wow, see, this is all very like high tech for me, but that's very cool. And I love the yellow. It's actually very low tech. <laughs> but it seems high tech to me. Uh, got it. It's like ancient. That's what cavemen would do. Yeah. They would use wood. Um, okay. So this is, I, I mean, it's, I feel bad for people who are just listening to this, but we're looking at a beautiful house and now we're yeah. looking at a kitchen. Now we're going out into the garden and it looks like, what time is it there right now? Is it one o'clock? One o'clock. So we're just two hours different. Mm -hmm. Now we're in so, the backyard. Flowers. Oh my god. Gosh, and I'm dude... like a dizzying filmmaker, like never, yeah, never. making all of us very nauseous. I'm sorry. <laughs> I uh I know I'm not so great at that. So, so you are outside. Garden. Oh my it's enchanted. There's a wooden gate. This feels like the wooden we're, in, like, gate. we're like in Hobbiton or whatever, like Lord of the Rings. <laughs> we're in Hobbiton. <laughs> yes. I can't and... even get it open. It's so full. This is asparagus gone to seed. Wait, all the, it, looks, see, it looks like dill. It looks like dill, but it's act, that's asparagus. I do have dill, too. So what do you do um, with it when it's gone to seed? You just let it grow out? and You just let it go. Yeah, let, let it, it go. Okay. Um, so these are all... That's the dill. With the flowering dill behind you, like the yellow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and so that's the little hut that I work in. Okay. Very cool. And for nice, those who can't right? see, there's yeah. a little hut behind her and lots of flowering dill. So in do, the you, garden. do you maintain yep. this garden yourself? Do you do all the digging and planting mm -hmm. and growing? And Wow, that's so yes. cool. Um, I, I do a lot of the harvesting. I do all the weeding. Aaron does the bed preparation and a lot of planting and watering. You know, there's nice. it's a lot to it. It's a big it's a pretty big garden. What are we looking at? It's like um, it's probably like 40 feet, 45 Okay. Feet almost by like 30. So what, what's coming in right now that you're most excited about? Well, we were kind of late on these. Oh, look at the sun come. Um, these are fava beans. Ooh, that's so cool. So, I've never seen a fava bean just grow. Yeah. And they do and really well in yeah, the north in Minnesota mm. um, because it's so cold here. So they grow in like these pods that look like sleeping bags inside they're very fleecy and <laughs> yeah and then you have to boil them and pop them out of their uh, little shells mm -hmm. right yeah so it's a two-part process that's why they're they haven't really been that popular for like the last 200 years yes it's, but it's the, the chefs instead. love them yeah and i've i've yeah. done it before and it's really nice with have the you? pecorino yeah pecorino cheese and olive oh, oil yeah, yeah delicious here i just got one out and it's like nice oh my god that's a real fava bean that she is holding in her hand that she grew <laughs> Herself. What about um tomatoes? Are those growing in yet? Yes, I have lots of tomatoes plant. Tomato, tomatoes planted. Nice. Um, this garden is lush. Is oh, look at all this. And we're getting red. Do you grow egg any? Plants. Oh, eggplants growing in the ground. This is so cool. I'm jealous. I want a garden like Who this. Visit. I will. Uh, well, Amy, this was a great grand finale to our conversation. I feel like uh, it ended with like fireworks, but they were vegetable <laughs> fireworks. Uh, yes, well, thank you. Fun. Yeah. Thanks so much Thanks for talking. Thanks for letting me show it. And yeah. it's super great talking to you. And I want you to um, psychoanalyze me in the future. I'm... <laughs> okay, we'll do it again. Well, congratulations on the cookbook. I can't wait to get a hard copy because it is beautiful. So I will and, send you one. Yeah, good luck with it. And I'll talk to you soon.
Yeah, good luck with your move. Thank you so much. Come visit us in New York. I will. All right, I'll see you later. Bye.